Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us on this weekend of our online liturgy. It's such a delight to be able to do this together. So grateful for our team that is putting this together. But I have to share something very candidly with you. I'm tired of online. I'm looking forward to the day when we'll be able to gather in this place and we'll meet each other in the Cardo. And just a heads up to those of my friends who are not huggers. You need to know I'll be looking for you. And when I see you, I'm going to say, dude, hug, bring it in. Can you imagine what that day is going to be like? But can you imagine what heaven is going to be like when we see everybody and we're gathered together? But we're not there today. Here we are. We're still in the midst of this uh, pandemic. But we're still in a country that affords us a luxury of public worship. So thank you for making the effort to be a part of this time together. You know, recently I uh, heard an interview with a, a coach of an athletic team that found itself in an unfortunate slump and a disastrous losing streak. Uh, and just for any smart Alex that might be out there who uh, taunt me and mock me for my loyalties, it was not the coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs. However, when he was asked why he thought the team was in such a funk, he said this, I think we have lost a sense of who we are as a team. We have lost a sense of who we are as a team. We're continuing in our teaching series on finding power for living. And if you're just joining us, let me just bring you up to snuff a little bit as briefly as I can. We're diving back into the book of Romans. And not to go all the way back to chapter 1, but if we go back a few chapters, chapter 6 is where we find Paul talking about the fact that once we were enslaved to sin and death, but now, because of what God has done in his grace, we are enslaved to something else. We are enslaved to righteousness and life. When we come into chapter 7, Paul brings the law to the table of discussion. And he says this, when you were under the law... That was an external code that informed, that motivated, that directed, that influenced your conduct. But now there's a new code. It's in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so now when we come into chapter 8, which is where we find ourselves, this is where Paul starts to unpack and explain in more detail what is this life in the Spirit all about. So today, in our time together, we're going to focus on verses 12 to 17 of Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 12 to 17, and I'm going to read this for you. And as we do, please remember, this is the word of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, 
in order that we may also be glorified with him. The word of God for the people of God. Now, the way we're going to look at this passage is I want us to focus in on one particular truth, and it is simply this. One of the prerequisites for finding power for living is that we have a solid sense of identity, specifically who we are in Christ. And the way I'd like to invite you to consider this with me is we're going to look at, through the lens, first of all, of two negatives and then two positives. In other words, two statements about who we are not and then two statements about who we are. So, let's begin with this. Paul says in verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. I love the way Paul begins this passage with these two words, so then. I suggest you he probably could have began with my favorite question, so what? Because it flows right out of what has gone before. Let me just read verse 11 that precedes it. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also live, give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So what, we could say. But Paul says, so then, in light of that, what do we find first of all? First of all, we are not debtors. We are not debtors. It seems to be like a conclusion of what he's been saying up until this point. But there are two assumptions in this, in this verse. The first is this. That old sin nature, he calls it the flesh, is still alive and well. It is still active, even in the lives of believers. That flesh to this point has not been eradicated. But secondly... It's important for us to notice what Paul is emphasizing here, and that is that just by virtue of the fact that it still exists does not in itself mean that we are under obligation. We are not indebted to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So what is Paul referring to here when he uses this term, the flesh? Well, the flesh is in the Greek, it's the word sarks. Can you say that with me? Sarks. Well, what is it? it it's not the meat stuff that hangs off our bones and ligaments, particularly, but rather it is a complex of elements, and it includes many things, our motives, our desires, our affections, our principles, our purposes, our ambitions, not all of which are evil, but all these things, Paul says, that we are not under obligation. We are not debtors to those things to live according to them. And it is his point that he has made so far to think that if I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit and yet still live under the the tyranny, the governance, the control of the flesh, well, that's simply unthinkable. So what is Paul saying we need to do? Well, come to verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, remember, Paul's writing to Christians. So when he says, if you live live according to the flesh, you will die, he's not saying, listen, if you sin, you're dead. Done, you've lost your salvation. I think what Paul is saying is this. Listen, if you choose to live according to the flesh, if you choose to live as though you are obligated to live just by according to the flesh, the best, the ultimate that the flesh can offer you, ultimately, in the very end, 
is separation from God. It's death. It's death. Now, how then do we put to death the deeds of the body? And again, there's a couple of observations I think we need to make. First of all, Paul says here, remember, if by the Spirit you put the deeds to death, who puts the deeds of the body to death? We do. God doesn't do that. Don't you ever wish he would? Don't you ever wish that God would just kind of clear the slate, move all those things out of my life? But he doesn't. And it's important to remember that the tense which Paul says here, if you put, if by the Spirit you put to death, it's in a present tense, which means he's saying, if by the Spirit you keep on putting to death the deeds of the body. It's quite reflective of the words that Jesus said when he said this, look, and if anyone wants to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, here's what you have to do. You have to take up your cross. But once? No. How often? Daily. Every day. But Jesus, the cross hurts. Yes, it does. It does. And that, of course, raises the question, so what does that mean? What does it practically mean to put to death the deeds of the body? Let me give you a suggestion to try to just tease out one simple statement. It simply means this. We refuse to allow those things which may or may not be in themselves sinful, we refuse to allow them to govern, to have tyrannic uh, uh, influence over what we do. And we say, great, but how do you do that? I mean, I've tried that, Bill. How do we do that? And that's where we come back to this verse, and Paul says it very clearly. But if how? By the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. By the Spirit. Folks, we don't have the resources. We don't have the resources to do this on our own strength. Let me say it this way. The only way we as Christ followers can find this power for living as God desires is by the enabling and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is not a luxury, folks. It's a complete necessity. And I think what Paul is doing here is he's, as he does in several other passages, is he's holding intention and in that important balance between divine grace, what God provides, and human responsibility and human effort. But what Paul is stressing here is this. Listen, we are not debtors to the flesh. We are not debtors. But secondly, he says, we are not slaves. Come down to verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We are not, secondly, slaves. Slaves of what? Well, Paul says very clearly, slaves of fear. Now, you and I live in a culture of fear anymore, don't we? I mean, our world seems to be enveloped with fear. Now, fear can be very helpful. Fear can help us run away from harm. But fear can also place us in a very significant position of precarious vulnerability or worse. And I may sound like a cynic here. Gullibility. Fear sometimes leads us to believe almost anything. Well, what is Paul talking about when he's talking about fear? I think 
there could be two possibilities here. One is the fear of death, which is a ubiquitous, a universal fear that most of the human race has at some point or another. And it's, it's reflective when we look at the writer to the Hebrews, when he talked about this kind of fear in chapter 2 of Hebrews, and he says this, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise, to Jesus, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who listen, through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Fear of death. But I think there might be another dimension which Paul has in mind when he's talking about we're not slaves of fear. Because remember, Paul was a Pharisee before he came to follow Christ. And as a Pharisee, he was committed to the meticulous observance of all the fine points of the law, all 613 laws that the Talmud had included. And Paul had a fear, I would suggest, like most Pharisees, that he might fail in one or more of those. And worse than that, that other Pharisees would be aware of his failure. And I wonder if Paul didn't know that in Rome there were still there were some Jewish Christians who, like him in his own experience, were afraid of what other people might think. Well, what if they knew? What if people knew what my dark secrets were? Or sometimes as parents, we wonder, what do people think because of choices that our kids have made or are making? We have a fear of that. And listen, Paul says this. We are not slaves to fear. Whether it's a fear of death, whether it's a fear of failure, whether it's a fear of what other people think, Paul says this. Part of our identity is this. We are not slaves. So from a negative point of view, who are we? Who are we not? We are not debtors. We are not under obligation to live under the rule of what we call the flesh, that natural tendencies. And we are not slaves. Well, then who are we? Think positive. Let's look through the positive lens. And first of all, we come back to verse 14. And Paul says this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons. Now, we need to make a note. The, 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 the ESV, the English Standard Version, translate that, sons. My Bible has a note if you go to the preface, which is uninspired, but is there. That's a word that can also be used, daughter, sons and daughters. All right? So it's not just limited to the male dudes of the family. Right? For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So who are we? Paul makes it very clear. We are children of God. That's who we are. Who are the children of God? He says those who are led, and again it's in a present tense, those who are consistently being led, those who are led. And there's a, there's a word in the Greek, we can't kind of translate it properly into English, but the way, because it would be too cumbersome, but the way it says is this, those who are led by the Spirit and these and no others, only these who are led by the Spirit, they or the children of God. And I think what Paul's doing here is emphasizing a stark and wonderful contrast between what he has said we are not. We are not slaves. What are we? We're children. We are children, not slaves. And I love how Paul uses the analogy in verse 15 of adoption. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That word adoption is magnificent words. Combination of two words. One word is son. The other word is to put or to place. To put or to place as a son. And what that implies is this. Even though not born into a family, the person who is adopted is treated exactly the same as if they were. My wife and I have had the joy of adopting our first two kids. I don't talk to them about them in terms of my adopted kids and my other kids, my biological kids. I had a friend who said, you know, Bill, think about it this way. Your first two were subcontracted out and your last two were DIY jobs. Now, you might not like that or think that's very couth, but however, I have four children, period. I don't refer to my adopted kids as, oh yeah, they were my adopted. They are my kids, right? And this is what Paul is saying here. The Spirit of God has given us the spirit of adoption where we cry out, Abba, Father. And I wish we could get into it. That word cry implies intensity of feeling. It talks about fervor of expression. And that phrase, Abba, Father, it's Aramaic. And he uses two words, Abba, Father. And the term Abba was a, an expression that Jesus used when he was in the garden. Mark includes it in his gospel, chapter 14. Remember when he was praying in great torment, and Jesus, in that intimate, intimate hour with him and the Father, he says, Abba, Father, Mark 14, 36. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, folks, think about that. Because of the Spirit of God's work in our lives, we can call God Abba Father. That means this. I can refer to God, my Heavenly Father, the same way Jesus, while he was on earth, referred to the Father. Same way. And rather, therefore, than approaching God through fear and trepidation, either as a slave or as a debtor, the Spirit has brought us to a place where we can approach him as a child of his, a treasured, precious child of his. And that childhood, that sonship that I enjoy with God is not based on what I do. It's on who I am. And who am I? I am a child of God. I'm a child of God. Solely because of the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. And Paul goes on to say in verse 16, you know what, this truth about being the child of God, it's the Holy Spirit himself who bears witness to that. He bears witness to this fact. It's not just some ethereal feeling, flitting feeling. It's the Holy Spirit himself who bears witness, testifies. Well, how does he do that? I like what one commentator said in this way. It's in his comforting us, his stirring us up to prayer, his reproof of our sins, his drawing us to works of love, his leading us to bear witness to the world. When the Spirit of God is working in my life, in your life, folks, it's his bearing witness to the fact that we are the children of God. And the Spirit of God does that, not on the basis of what we do, but who we are. But secondly, not only are we children of God, because we are children of God, Paul seems to say here, we are heirs of God. Well, what is the inheritance 
that we as heirs of God are to receive? What is it that we are going to inherit? Well, we, Paul doesn't explain here. He doesn't go into great detail to tell us what that inheritance is. But if we go back to many passages in the Old Testament, for example, if we went to Psalm 73, at the, partway through that, verse 25, 26, the psalmist says this, The Lord is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. Jeremiah says the same thing in Lamentations 3. Lord, you are my portion. And when we look at other passages in Scripture, and I think what Paul is implying here is this, our inheritance, what we inherit as children of God, is God himself. We inherit him. Majorian Thomas, who was the founder of Cape Henry Missionary Fellowship, uh, used to have all these wonderful, pithy statements. And there's one that he would often repeat to us as his students. And it's simply this. He said this. All that God is, is available to the one who is available to all that God is. Let me say that again. All that God is, is available to the one who is available to all that God is. And what Paul adds here is this. Not only are we heirs of God, but listen, we are fellow heirs, joint heirs with Christ. Now think about what that means. What was it that Jesus, in a sense, was going to inherit? There are many things that we could probably land on, but I think what Paul is stressing here is, in this particular passage, it's the glory of God. It's what he prayed in, in John chapter 17 in that high priestly prayer. Father, restore to me the glory that I enjoyed with you in eternity past. And let my disciples see me. Let them participate. Let them see my glory. So how do we inherit with Jesus the glory of God? Well, there's a sequence here. Because an integral connection that we find between, it is between the, the glory of God and also of Christ, the suffering of Christ. There was that order in Jesus' life. Suffering, then glory. Jesus was having a discussion with two disciples, or three, on the road to Emmaus. And they were distraught because the events that had just happened, the crucifixion, the burial of Christ, they didn't know the resurrection had happened yet. But that blew their theology to smithereens. And they were distraught. They thought this wasn't how it was supposed to work out. And Jesus joins them. He hears them talking. And then he starts to explain to them. And he says this in Luke chapter 24. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And Paul says in verse 17 here, And if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we, what? Suffer, now the next word is important. It does not say suffer for Christ. It says this, suffer with Christ. Oh, come on, Bill, that's a preposition. Are we talking semantics here? Well, think about it. What that means, folks, is this. If I am suffering with Christ, that means this. There is never, ever a time in my life or yours when we suffer Entirely alone. Because you see, we have a Savior. We worship a Savior who is tempted and tested in all points like as we are yet without sin. He not only suffered for us, 
but he suffered and continues, folks, to suffer what? With us. You know, the New Testament talks a lot about suffering of God's people. Paul does it a fair bit. In fact, Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There are several other passages we go to. I just take you down to one in 1 Peter. 1 Peter, where he says this. If I can get this page to turn over. There we go. He says this, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 1 Peter 4.13 And it seems to me, folks, what Scripture is underscoring here is the fact that often it's in the arena of suffering where we may be ushered into the experience of the glory of Christ. Now listen, I don't like suffering. I don't look for suffering. I'm not good at suffering. But I've also discovered, based on what God has said and based on his faithfulness into my own experience, that when I'm suffering, I'm not suffering just for Jesus, folks. I'm suffering with him, which means he is suffering with me. Whatever you are suffering, dear friend, Christ suffers with you. Jesus himself made a promise. John 16, verse 33. He said this, I have said these things, this is in the upper room discourse, that you in me, have, that you might have peace. Amen. I like peace. Don't you? I like peace. That's good. Thank you, Jesus. And then he says this, in the world, you will have uh, tribulation. Now that's a word that is a picturesque word. It's used to describe the process of making wine by squashing the grapes. So Jesus is saying, I've said these things so that you would have peace. And here's what I want to tell you. In the world, you, dear friends, are going to be squashed like grapes. And all God's people said, yeah, that's what I thought. But then he says this, but listen, take heart. I've overcome the world. You know, folks, our suffering does not identify who we are. My brother died of cancer. My mom died of cancer. There are many of our dear friends within the fellowship of our church who are suffering from cancer. That's not who you are. You are not a cancer patient or cancer survivor. You are a child of God. You are an heir, a joint heir with Christ. Because you see, being a child of God and being an heir with Christ does not preclude suffering from our experience. I think sometimes we've allowed ourselves to drift into a mindset that suggests if I am suffering, it's because God's displeased with me or he's punishing me or he's building character in me or he's simply not interested in me. Like the great clockmaker, he's set things in motion, taken a place in the stands, not involved in my life. Or we sometimes put it just down to an attack of Satan. But Paul is underscoring the fact, folks, that because of who we are, nothing could be further from the truth. Suffering is linked to sharing with the glory of Christ. Now, in the next section of this chapter, starting at verse 18, in the weeks ahead, we're going to get into this a little bit more deeper. So you want to come back and see how this unfolds either more. But let me try to draw this to a close for now. So who are we? 
Positively, we are the children of God. We've been adopted by him. And because we're children of God, we are heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus. So what have we learned? What's a takeaway or two that we can take from this passage? I suggest you what we see here is that the activity of us as a Christ follower, the putting to death the deeds of the body, and the activity of the Holy Spirit, he leads us, this, or he governs us. These two activities are not independent. Rather, as one writer has said this, these are complementary. The activity of the believer is the evidence of the Spirit's activity, and the activity of the Spirit is the cause of the believer's activity. So then why do we struggle so much? Why do I struggle? Can I make a suggestion? A while ago, reading some of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I came across a statement which he said, and it was this. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Let me say that again. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? You know, one of the evidences of being filled with the Holy Spirit, according to Paul in Ephesians 5, is that we'll talk to one another in hymns and songs and spiritual songs. Folks, that is why we need corporate worship together. We need that. And I'm praying that this situation we find ourselves in is as kind of neat as it is in some ways, soon comes to an end because I need you and I need to be with you and we need to be together filling the air with truth. That's how we talk to each other. We speak truth to ourselves through songs and hymns and spiritual songs. If I find myself in bondage to fear, folks, that's debilitating or that creates a distancing between me and God, that friend is not the work of the Holy Spirit. That could well be an evidence that I have lost sight or I am forgetting or I am choosing to ignore who I really am. Who am I? Who are we? We are not debtors. Debtors to the flesh. We are not slaves. Slaves to fear. But we are children of God led by the Spirit. We are heirs of God, joined heirs with Jesus. That's who we are, folks. He is a good, good Father, and we are loved by Him. That's who we are. That's who you are. So what is God saying to you? Is He needing to remind you you're living like you're an orphan. You're living like you're a slave. And you're neither. You're my child. You're my heir. And I love you. Let me pray with you. Eternal God and Father, we are so grateful for the truths that you've given to us in your word. We are so grateful for the grace that you extend to us. We are so grateful the fact, Lord, you have not left us as orphans. Lord Jesus, you promised you wouldn't do that. 
but you'd give us another comforter, the Holy Spirit. And I pray for my dear friends, my brothers and sisters, those, Lord, who particularly at this time are facing immense difficulties, not only because of COVID, but because of many other things in life. I pray, Father, that you would take the truth of your word and apply it to our hearts and reminding us of who we are. We are not slaves. We are not debtors. But we are your children. And because we're your children, we are your heirs. Oh God, please apply that to the lives and the hearts of all who hear this. And in my own heart, I pray. And we ask this so that by in doing so, you will be glorified and made large in our hearts and our homes and in this place. And for our good, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let me give you a, a blessing, a benediction as we go into this week. So please receive this. And it's my prayer for me. It's my prayer for you, for each of us, as we go into yet another week of another normal. And it's simply what Paul said, this truth in Ephesians chapter 3. Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably beyond what we could ever ask or think, according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God bless you, dear friends. We love you. Trust you have a great week. And remember who you really are. Amen.